0: We're actually going to finish 2 Thessalonians today. Like I've always said, it's always great to finish a book because we're going to be starting a new book. And you might say, where are we going next? Uh, I believe, unless the Lord just changes my thinking, but I, I believe that we're going to be in 1 John. And probably then into 2 John and then into 3 John starting next Sunday. So you can read ahead. But this morning we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. I titled this morning's message, The Things We Command You. And these two letters of Paul have been one that For me, anyway, it's been a restirring in my heart when I consider the days that we're living in. We're living in desperate days. We're living in a world right now that every single day we're seeing things transpire in the news and going on around us that should make us very much aware that God's Word is being fulfilled before our eyes. I believe that the nations are lining up I believe that we're living in days right now where um, it's obvious to those who are aware, to those who are alert, that Jesus Christ's return, I believe, is drawing near. I'm not setting a date, by the way. It's drawing near. Three weeks ago, we learned that Paul's second letter that he wrote here was really a follow-up letter. Uh, Paul had to answer some questions concerning some questions that had arisen in the believers' hearts there at Thessalonica. Uh, Some of those questions may have come from the first letter, but I believe that the questions really arose from other teachers and other people that were coming in and beginning to uh, question some of the teaching of the Apostle Paul in regards to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Paul is still in the city of Corinth as he is writing this second letter. And one of the big concerns that the Christians were having there at Thessalonica was that they were reading and hearing from possibly some other teachers that they were already living in a time called the day of the Lord. Now, these false doctrines, it didn't take very long for them to begin to creep into the church. People with their various ideas and coming up with their different interpretations, and it began to create some confusion. But remember that these were beginning days And Paul himself was having these revelations and these understandings of things pertaining to end times. The early church was learning these things. Apostle Paul had actually taught them even these things concerning the end times while he was with them. But now these questions needed to be clarified. There was really two questions that Paul had to address in his second letter. One of them had to do with the day of the Lord. Now, keep in mind that I brought out that there's a distinction between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. The day of Christ also could be a reference i believe to the rapture of the church the day of the lord is a time that god is going to deal with a christ rejecting world he's also going to deal with the nation of israel in a very specific way that he is going to draw back a remnant of his people to himself and so there is this distinction between the day of christ and the day of the lord What these teachers were saying is that they were living in the day of the Lord; that the time had come, and that the day of the Lord was at hand. Some of the reasons for that may have been just through what they were teaching, but also they were living in a time period of great persecution. And what they knew and what they were taught about what the day of the Lord was going to be like, from the Old Testament prophets, is that it was going to be a very dark and gloomy day. It was going to be a time of destruction. It was going to be be a time of God pouring out His wrath upon this world. It was going to be a time of God setting up His kingdom. And they were concerned that maybe they had missed the rapture and that they were living in what is called the day of the Lord. Paul had to address this by telling them that the day of the Lord would not happen until a falling away Took place. Now, this falling away is the Greek word apostasy or apostasia, and it really, by definition, means a departure. Now, as I shared when we ta- when I taught this section, that this departure has been interpreted two different ways: one, a departure from the faith; that in the last days, that many within the church will begin to depart from the faith. I could see that when the days that we're living in now, as things get more difficult, as the world gets more difficult to live in, many Christians are being tested at their very core. And if you are not grounded in the Word of God and you don't know your Word, you could be one of those that would find yourself shaking and find yourself having a difficult time in the world we live in. Our hope and our strength comes from what we get from our our word and from the Lord. And so the falling away, Paul says, needed to happen first before the day of the Lord would begin. Now, some, as I shared, also translate this departure also as the possibility that it's speaking of the rapture of the church, which also makes sense to me. Unless there come a falling away first or a departure of the church from this world into heaven, the day of the Lord is not at hand. It's not here. The second thing that Paul brought out as to a sign of the day of the Lord is in regards to the man of sin. He's also referred to as the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians here. Paul said, until the one who restrains is taken out of the way, this man of sin or this lawless one cannot be revealed. And so, who is the restrainer? I believe the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. I believe that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit living within the church body, the believers that are here now on earth, God's spirit living in us. And when that departure takes place, the rapture of the church, and the Holy Spirit is not removed from the, from the earth, but it's removed in the sense of being in the lives of the believers and the churches in heaven, then the man of sin, the lawless one can be revealed. Paul really gave these two things as what to look for in regards to the sign that the day of the Lord had begun. Paul closed this portion of his letter in chapter in, in uh, 215 with a therefore. He says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast. This word stand fast means that we are to stand firm. And we're to hold the traditions, Paul says. Those traditions are not what we think about when Jesus talked about the traditions of the religious Pharisees that were holding these traditions. These traditions that Paul is speaking of is the instructions or the teachings that He had given to them. He says, hold the traditions or hold on to the instruction or teachings which you were taught And he says, whether by word, which is verbal, or by epistle, which is letter. And that's really how Paul was communicating with these believers. Paul also, though, gave them some words of encouragement in verse 16 and 17. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself... And our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Notice that this good word, and he also speaks of a good work. You see, God is always concerned with our good word as much as He is with our good work. You see, a lot of times we have uh, a good work, but there's not really a good word coming out of the mouth. And God is always concerned with both. Every good word and every good work that would come forth out of our life. Both are important. Let's read uh, our text together. I want you to, to look for the title of our message as I read through these verses. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is in you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. But we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked and labored and toiled night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, Neither shall he eat, <clears throat> for we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not walking at all, but are busy bodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary. <clears throat> And doing good, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul, he started this letter in chapter 1, in verse 11, telling the believers that they were praying, that he was praying always for them. That... God would count them worthy, and this was his prayer for them, that God would count them worthy of his calling. That was the first thing that Paul was praying for these believers. The second thing is that he would fulfill the good pleasure of his goodness, And the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That was Paul and Silas and Timothy's prayer for the believers that were there at Thessalonica. Paul had this God-given passion for the believer's growth. He had this this passion for their discipleship. That they would grow, that they would be doing well. It's something that I can relate to as a pastor in this church. I have a great desire to see this church grow in the Word of God. I have a great desire and passion to see you all maturing and growing in the, words, in the Word of God. Growing in your knowledge of God. It's something that God works in our heart. That was Paul. He cherished these believers at, at Thessalonica just like a mother. Here's Mother's Day. Just like a mother cherishes her own children. You mothers can relate to this. This was the kind of heart and passion that the Apostle Paul had toward these believers, not just in Thessalonica, but in all the churches that he planted. Paul finished, though, this second letter in chapter 3, verse 1, with these words. First, he prayed for them in the first chapter, and now in the third chapter in verse 1, he says, finally, brethren, pray for us. Paul and his companions, which was Silas and Timothy on this journey, they also asked for prayer. They wanted them to pray for them. They needed their prayers. You see, prayer is never one sided. I need your prayers, you need my prayers. We need each other to pray for one another. It's never one-sided. We're never just the one prayer. We need people to pray for us. Paul was a person who believed in the power of prayer to change things. In Romans chapter 15, Paul wrote this. In verse 30, he says, I beg you, brethren. Listen to those words. I'm begging you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God, and then he says, for me. Paul's saying that you would strive together in your prayers for me. He says that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Paul says, strive together in prayer for me. Paul closed his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 6 verse 18 He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And then he says, and for me. In other words, don't leave me out. I need your prayers. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul knew, I need your prayers. I'm here in prison. I need your prayers. Pray for boldness, that I might open my mouth and speak forth the gospel, even in this situation that I'm in. Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Continue earnestly in prayer. Be vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open up to us a door for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Paul was dependent upon prayer. Paul knew that his ministry had no power apart from the prayers of God's people praying for him. We need to pray for one another. You need to pray for me. It's a two-way road. And it's how this church will grow. It's how this church will do well in ministry through prayer. In 2 Corinthians 1.11, Paul wrote... You also helping together in prayer for us. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? You also helping together in prayer for us. That thanks may be given by many persons on behalf for the gift granted to us through many. You see, when we join together in prayer as a church, God accomplishes much. It's why I'm always sending out these prayer requests to you as the body. Praying for one another. Praying for these situations. Praying for this church. It's important that we do that. David and Hannah are going to be leaving to Honduras on Monday. They're going on a a week or two trip. Hannah, I think, for a week. David, for a couple weeks. They're going to be gone. They need your prayers. They covet your prayers. And as a church body, I I know David and I, I know that they're saying, pray for us. That's what we need. We need your prayers. Helping together with them in prayer. Have you ever heard a Christian tell you, I don't, or they say, don't pray for me. Save those prayers for someone else that needs them. I've had people tell me that through the year. You know, don't, don't pray for me. You know, there's other people that need, you know, as if I'm going to overwhelm God. You know, I'm, I'm going to give him too many things. You know, don't, like I can't lift all those things up before the Lord. You know what that is when somebody says that? Pride. Hm. I don't need your prayer. Pray, you know, save those for somebody else. I have a prayer request from you. Pray for me. Pray for Kathy. I need your prayers. I covet your prayers. As much as you want to lift up to God for me and Kathy, I covet them. You can do it all day long if you want. You want to set four hours aside a day to pray for me? Do it. I'll welcome it. I think the apostle Paul he knew the success of his ministry depended on God's people praying. I know that's true. I know that 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 this ministry here, Calvary Chapel Fellowship, it's going to grow, it's going to multiply, it's going to become healthy through prayer. Paul goes on to say that the Word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. That was his prayer request. That the Word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is in you. Paul's prayer request that the Word of the Lord would run swiftly was like saying that there would be no hindrances to the Gospel going out. That people would hear as we go out and we preach the Gospel, there would be no hindrance to it. He says the same word that came to you when I came into your city and I preached the Gospel and many of you got saved is the same word that I ask you to pray that it would run swiftly. That it would go out in power. That there would be no hindrances to it. Pray for me. I need your prayers. Is what Paul was asking of them. That God would be glorified when His Word is taught. When His Word is preached. That God would be glorified in it. Paul knew. I'm convinced that God's Word Will change people's lives. It'll not only lead them to salvation, but it'll change your life. As many times as you pick up the Word of God, as many times as you hear me teach it, as many times as you hear some other teacher teach it, you are growing. God's Word never returns void, it goes out and it accomplishes what it does. And whether you think you remember every message that you hear or every word that's being taught, God is having His way in your heart every time you hear it taught. And what you're going to do is you'll look back on your life a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, and say, there's growth happening in me. I look at this church. I look at you. I see the growth that I see happening in this church and in your lives. And I rejoice in that. And it's a work of God's Holy Spirit. It's a work of God's Word. Paul also asked them to pray that we would be, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For not all have faith. Unreasonable men were those who were seeking to harm the Apostle Paul. Wicked men are those who are evil inside, and they're seeking to corrupt others through their evil. Pray for us, pray for us that we would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Paul asked for that prayer. Paul knew that these unreasonable and wicked men wanted to hinder the work of the gospel. And so Paul says, pray that God would deliver us from them. In Acts chapter 16, you remember Paul and Silas, before they came into the city of Thessalonica, they were beaten and they were imprisoned there in Philippi for their faith. In Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were ran out of Thessalonica for their faith. And then they went on to Berea, and they were ran out of Berea for their faith. In Acts chapter 18, Paul came into Corinth, where he was writing these two letters now. And it was here that the Jews were told, opposed him, and they blasphemed And so Paul, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, we're told that he shook his garments and he said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean, for now I turn to the Gentiles. We're told that Paul ministered the gospel in this city for a year and six months. He was there teaching and he was preaching the gospel. And on one occasion we're told that the Jews with one accord that they rose up against Paul and they brought him to the judgment seat. This is where the judge sat up on this platform to stand before Galileo. And the Jews said of Paul, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to our law. They were under great persecution for their faith. Because they were making a stand, they were being bold for Jesus Christ. They were experiencing this great persecution. Paul says, Pray that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. It was in this city that the Lord spoke to Paul one night by a vision. He told Paul, Do not be afraid, Paul but speak. And do not keep silent, Paul, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Paul knew that with all of the persecution, with all of the pain, everything that he went through for the Gospel's sake, Paul knew there were people in this city that needed Christ. There was people in this city that were hungering for truth. And I'm willing to go in there and I'm willing to suffer for the cause of Christ because they need to hear. But Paul says, pray for me that I would be delivered from these men. We're all called to ministry, church. It wasn't just the Apostle Paul. You're called to a ministry of suffering yourself at times. You will be called to suffer for Christ if you will speak up for Christ. If you'll you'll live unashamed of your faith before this world it's guaranteed you will suffer in some form for Jesus Christ. Isn't that exciting? I I mean, think about it. To be able to say that you suffered for the cause of Christ, does that excite you? Or does that bum you out? You see, persecution spiritual warfare, people speaking against you, that's part of being a witness for Jesus Christ. Jesus told His disciples, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when they revile and they persecute you. That word blessed means happy. Happy are you when they revile and they persecute you and they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. That's, what it, that's why we do it. We want to glorify You, Lord. And our reward in heaven is going to surpass all the suffering of this life. Jesus says they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It won't be any different for you. That's the life of a Christian that is being a witness for Jesus Christ. I know that many of you work in jobs where you're surrounded by unreasonable and even wicked men and women at times that are not Christians Paul says for not all have faith you're in the world you work in the world you're around people that don't like what you stand for they don't like to hear those things come forth out of your mouth even just being thankful to God thanking the Lord being unashamed of your they don't like it But God has placed you there. It's your mission field. It's why you're there, not just to earn a paycheck, but to be a light for Christ. You see, persecution came quickly in the early church. It's because the Gospel was advancing. It was running swiftly. God was having His way. And he was using persecution to spread his church. But in it, there were unreasonable and wicked men. They came up against the gospel. Nothing's changed. You've heard it said, you just need to watch your news. Even President Trump is trying to pass a bill right now against persecution against Christians in the world. Persecution today is at an all time high. In all of church history, it's at an all time high. The top 21 countries on the list, starting with North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, Etria, Libya, Nigeria, Maldives, Saudi Arabia, India, Uzbekistan, Vietnam, Kenya, Turkmenistan, Qatar, and Egypt. Those are the top 21 where great persecution is happening against Christians. I think the Paul wasn't, I think Paul in his mind, if he wasn't being beaten or ran out of town, then he was saying, Pray for me that I might have more boldness. That's why, it, 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 because he knew that the two went hand in hand. Paul wrote about his ministry. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul says this. In labors, more abundant. In stripes above measure. That stripes is being beaten. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Five times beaten with a whip. And they would not do that 40th lash Because of mercy, 39 of them. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods, Paul says. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the deep. In journeys often and in perils of water and perils of robbers and perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles and perils of in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness and in toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And besides all of these what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. That makes me tired just reading it. I mean, you you think about it. Here's a man just like you and I that was completely sold out for the Gospel. And somehow or another, we, we tend to want to shrink back because somebody just doesn't like the idea that we're saying something nice about God. And, and look at it. And look at his testimony. Why should our ministry be any different? If you live for Christ, you will suffer persecution. And it will glorify God in your life. And it will be a witness and a powerful witness to this world. But look at verse 3. It's one of those buts in the Bible. Verse 3. I'm glad it's here. But the Lord is faithful. Just stop there for a moment. But the Lord is faithful. Does that ring in your ears? Do you you think about that? Those words yourself? But the Lord is faithful. Who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Do you know that you have a great protector over your life? They, nothing, everything has to pass through the hand of God before somebody could harm you. But if it does happen, God allowed it. The Lord will establish you. That means he wants to, He will strengthen you. The Lord will guard you from the evil one. He will protect you. You see, the key to this is that the Lord is faithful. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13 that if we are faithless, God remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. You ever found yourself coming up short on faith? But God remains faithful to you Irregards of that. In Proverbs twenty nine twenty-five, it reads that the fear of man brings a snare. But those who trust in the Lord shall be saved. You know what a snare is? It's a trap. How does the enemy want to trap you? Through fear. Make you shrink back. Make you think that nobody wants to hear? make you think you're going to get persecuted if you open your mouth for Christ the fear of man brings a snare a trap to you but those who put their trust in the Lord will be saved but the Lord is faithful paul says to them 1 corinthians 10:13 if you don't have this verse memorized it would be a great one to memorize 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is what faithful, who will not allow or not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but with the temptation is able to make a way of escape that you're able to endure it. The key to that verse is God is faithful. He will always be faithful to you. Let me ask you, church, where does your strength and your protection come from? Think of your own personal life. Where does your strength and your protection come from? Psalm 121, the psalmist wrote this I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Lifting our eyes to the hills meant lifting your eyes up to Mount Zion. This was the throne, this was a place where Jehovah would sit. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? It's it's asking a question. And then it answers it. My help comes from the Lord. And And then it tells us why we can have so much confidence in that. It says, who made the heaven and the earth? Is there anyone that could be a better protector of you? than the one that actually spoke creation into existence with the very words of his mouth. He made the heavens and the earth. Do you think that God is able to have his hand of protection upon your life? He made the heavens and the earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He will keep you. He who keeps you will not slumber. Aren't you glad? God doesn't just, you know, like we do, you know, go to sleep at night and, you know, we're not protected now. He's sleeping. You know, uh, the Lord does not slumber. Behold, He keeps Israel. Uh, he, behold, He who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Where does your strength and your protection come from? Is it in the police department? Is it in the alarm system on your house? Is it, you know where, where is it? Our help comes from the Lord. Paul goes on in verse 4. He says, And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you do and will do the things we command you. Notice where Paul placed his confidence in this verse. It's in the Lord. My confidence is in the Lord, Paul says, uh, that... You will do and will do the things that we command you. Why did Paul put his confidence in the Lord? Because he knew that in himself he couldn't change people's hearts. I can't change your heart. It's not my job to change your heart. My job is to simply get up and teach the Word of God. It's the Holy Spirit that can change your heart. Paul knew that. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you do and will do the things we command you. Paul wrote in Philippians 2.13 that God is both in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. That's a work of God's Holy Spirit in your heart and in your life. It's a work of God. that you do and will do the things we command you. Paul is closing this letter out with some commands. This word command is a strong word actually that the Apostle Paul is using here. It's, it's, It's like a military order that is being handed down from a superior officer. That's what Paul is saying here. That... You do and will do the things we command you. The Greek word actually means to pass on an announcement. You see, Paul simply was passing on a command that he had received from the Lord himself to give to them. When I stand up here and I teach the Word of God, it's the Word of God that speaks into the truth into your heart, that convicts, that does its work. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But Paul saw the church really as an army of soldiers. He wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, Timothy, you must endure hardships as a good soldier. Of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. That's how Paul viewed the church and the believers like we're soldiers and we're receiving commands from the Lord. And I just want to be obedient to those commands from my God. They're coming from him. Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you do and will do the things we command you. Paul continues in verse 5 praying for them before he goes to explain the command that he's going to give them. He says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Paul's prayer for them was that God would work in their hearts. May the Lord direct your hearts into what? The love of God. Paul knew that when the heart changes, when our hearts change, our actions were followed. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. It's a work of God's Holy Spirit. And I'm praying for that in you, is what Paul is telling them. John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2: Beloved, speaking to Christians. Now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what, she, what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. Paul, in the second part of his prayer for them, was that the Lord would direct their hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ, that patience of Christ is that patiently waiting for the Lord's return. What effect does that have on your life? The effect that I believe it should have on our lives is holy living. That we should desire to live holy unto the Lord in light of the fact that the Lord could come back at any moment. The person that has this hope, that's living that, in that expectancy You see, every Christian may be ready to go to heaven, but not every Christian is prepared in his spiritual life. Some will be caught unaware. There will be some believers that are in a place that when the Lord returns, they're not going to want to be in that place. They're going to be caught unaware. I could put verse 5 this way. May the Lord clear away the obstacles that stand in your heart, that you may increase in your love for Him. And may the Lord give you all the perseverance and the patience as you wait for Christ's return. Paul now gives the command and he warns them, In verse 6, he really, uh, from verse uh, 6, 10, and 12, he's going to give three commands here. He says, but we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the traditions which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly. That word disorderly means idle. We were not idle among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge. You see, the Apostle Paul was very much concerned with his witness, his testimony, what people would think. Are you in this for the money? Are you doing this just because you can make your living off of it? Paul chose not to receive any support and help from those in the church because he didn't want to give any reason for the enemy to be able to come and say, you're in it for the buck. You're in it for the money. Verse 10 says, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk walk among you in a disorderly manner. In other words, there were some that were in the church that were being idle. They weren't working. Uh, They were not working at all. And and as a matter of fact, it goes on to say that they were busybodies. What what happens when you become idle? When you got a lot of time on your hands? You can delve into a lot of people's business. You can get involved, and and, and you know what? You, You become a busybody. We need to work, Paul says, and not be busybodies, not be idle. That's walking disorderly is what Paul was exhorting them in. Verse 12, now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and they eat their own bread. Very clear. I mean, this is practical stuff, isn't it? This This is his closing remarks to the church there that we called the model church at Thessalonica. They had problems within the church and it didn't take long. There were things that needed to be corrected. Paul's first command was withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. I think that there is an element uh, that is missing a lot in the church today and it has to do with discipline within the church. It'd be like a, it'd be like a, a mom and dad that never disciplined their child. What would you have? <laughs> wow, it wouldn't be good, would it? Discipline within the body of Christ is important. Paul is making some corrections here. But there's a lot of people in our day and age in the church today that, hey, come on, you know, don't go there. You know, I mean, church correction. You know, I I don't like that, that kind of stuff. Give me something, you know, makes me feel good. Paul says that there are times where extreme measures have to be taken even within the body of Christ withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, you might say, that sounds extreme. Why would you do that? To withdraw means to keep away or don't have fellowship with that person because of their walking disorderly. He goes on and he says in verse 7, he says, for You yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly or idle among you. In other words, we led by example. Nor did we eat any man's uh, bread free of charge, but we worked and labored and toiled night and day that we might not be a burden to any one of you. Paul was a tent maker. As a matter of fact, in, in Corinth there, he was there with Priscilla and Aquila, who were also tent makers. And Paul labored and he worked with his hands. But he also shared the gospel as he was working. And it, it, but he met his needs. He worked hard. This is not Scriptures to say that somebody should not be paid. You might be thinking, well, what about you, Greg? <laughs> what about you receiving uh, a pay for pastoring Calvary Chapel Fellowship? Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his wages. Paul addressed this issue. Paul is not making a statement that it's wrong to receive a wage for doing the work of the Lord or to be a missionary out in the mission field and be receiving support. Paul is not. He's saying for my own witness and my own testimony as I went out and planted churches, I chose not to receive from the churches so no one would be able to say that he's in it for the money. Command 2, verse 10, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. It's important to note that this command is not for those who couldn't work, but for those who wouldn't work. That's the difference. There are people that can't work. There are people that we minister to as the body of Christ that are in situations where they need for somebody to come alongside them and to help them, whether it be with food or money or or possessions. There were provisions for the poor. Remember that the, the, the farmers would leave the outskirts of the farmland Un, uh, unpicked so that the poor and the needy could come and meet their need. So it wasn't wrong to meet the needs of those that were poor or in need. But for those that wouldn't work, Paul is making this command. They, Verse 12, that they, they would work in quietness and eat their own bread. Paul says we command such people that they would work in quietness and earn their own food and other necessities of life. It's it's not for the church to support everybody that wants to be idle. It's not our responsibility as believers to go out and to feed those that should be working. But they won't. He goes on to say in verse 13, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. I think this is placed perfectly right here in light of this. How many of you have ever found yourself growing weary in your service for the Lord? How many of you have ever found yourself getting burned by somebody that you went in and helped them and found out they just don't want to work? And you, and you find yourself, uh, you know, getting burned. And after you've gotten burned a few times, yeah, I used to. I don't help anybody anymore. You know, I don't. I don't give anything anymore because you know I mean, I've been burned too many times by people. You know, that don't want to work. I say I'd rather be taken advantage of than to not give anything to somebody that's in need. I would rather fall trapped to that, of being taken advantage of. Paul to the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 9, he says, And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season you shall reap if you do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't go weary in ministry and trying to minister to people when sometimes it's very difficult to do. Because God calls us to that place. But here Paul is commanding those who would not work. He closes... And he says, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. He's elaborating on what he just said in verse 6. If anyone does not obey our word, this command in this epistle that I'm sending to you, then note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. What's the purpose? to shame them for what they are doing because they're taking advantage of the body of Christ. But look what he says. Verse 15. Yet do not count him as what? An enemy. Don't count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You see, to admonish somebody means to caution them, to give them advice, uh, to not look at them like they're an enemy, you know, uh, but to actually want to see change happen, to see something good happen in them. You see, one of the characteristics of God's love that lives inside of you by His Holy Spirit is that love thinks no evil. I'm not out looking for the evil in everyone's life. I'm not trying to pin down all these, these kinds of... Love thinks no evil. That's agape love. But there are times that people need to be admonished. There are times that people need to be shamed, really, for the way that they are taking advantage of the body of Christ. Paul closes this second letter, verse 16 to 18. He says, Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace always, in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign. That word sign means a proof. It's a proof in every epistle. So I write. In other words, there was a lot of imposters out there writing things and then putting Paul's name at the bottom and saying, "Eh, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul. You know my signature. You know what I've written to you before. This is me. I'm the one writing this letter. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Here's a man. Here's an apostle that went in and planted that church in Thessalonica. He saw people get saved. First Thessalonians thrilled with what God was doing in this church and in these believers. But Paul also had to correct. And that was all part of teaching. That was all part of of seeing them grow healthy. He had to instruct them and teach them and exhort them and even command them in the Lord that they would... Not do this or do this. That's part of the life of a Christian, that we would hear from our commander, that we'd hear his voice, that we'd be obedient to what he tells us to do and not do, that he would be glorified in our lives. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com from Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship. Thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.